This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, Steeler Nation. This is Chad Brown, and you are listening to SteelerNation.com podcast. Hello, Steeler Nation, and welcome to the SteelerNation.com podcast. I am your host, G Stryker, and welcome to our live vidcast as well on the SteelerNation.com YouTube channel. And today we are happy to have former All-Pro linebacker of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Chad Brown. Chad, how are you doing today? Man, uh, I'm doing well. You know, it's been a crazy uh, couple of months, and then particularly the last 10 days, just when we thought things couldn't get any crazier. But uh, despite all that's going on in the world, uh, personally, I'm doing pretty good. That's, that's really good to hear. And why don't you tell everybody in Steeler Nation whereabouts in the world you are now currently living? Uh, I am in uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado, which is about uh, 20 minutes south of Denver. You know, I went to University of Colorado, go Buffs. Yep. So this has always been home base, no matter where I was playing. And then uh, I bought a place in Arizona about a year and a half ago. So eventually I will get back out there. I'm a West Coast guy, born and bra- uh, raised in California. Nice. I'm looking forward to uh, avoiding some of these Colorado winters and enjoying that Arizona heat. <laughs> That's the way to go. I, I've got to start doing that, man. I just have to keep shoveling snow is my problem. Um, so you, you did say you played, obviously, for the University of Colorado, the Buffaloes, and you won a national championship in 1990. So what did it mean for you to play college football on the highest stage? Uh, it was a tremendous experience, uh, no, no doubt about that. Uh, when I left John Muir High School in Pasadena, California, uh, we had won 32 games in a row. And, uh, and when I was a Pop Warner player in Pasadena, I won lots of games as well. So uh, I certainly wanted a great college experience away from football, which Boulder is an amazing college town. It's usually ranked somewhere in the top three or four college towns. And when those rankings come out every single year, it's an amazing place. But uh, for the Colorado Buffaloes, we were building an amazing team. Uh, coach McCartney was a very good coach, uh, and they were plucking some of the best players from around the country, but in particular, Southern California. So for me to see them the year or two before I uh, graduated high school, you know, getting some of these players, I thought, wow, Colorado's doing something pretty special. And when they came and visited my home and Coach McCartney spoke to me, uh, I realized what a special program they were building, and I was determined to be a part of that. And, you know, it's funny how when a coach comes in your living room and he gives you his speech and his spiel to your parents and you think, oh, that's just coach speak, and every single part of it comes true, you know, it's a pretty uh, amazing experience. And I don't think anyone could want much more from a college experience than, than what I got. I fell in love with the state I live here. We won four Big Eight titles. We won a national championship. We played for the national championship another year. I got a job in my chosen profession. And, oh, yeah, I, I met my wife at the University of Colorado. And my kids have graduated from the University of Colorado. So wow, much better than that. That is amazing. That's amazing, Chad. Um, do you remember anything specifically from that Orange Bowl game against Notre Dame? Is there any stories you have to tell or a specific moment that really stands out in your mind? Well, a couple of moments. The year before when we played Notre Dame in the Orange Bowl and lost, 
uh, I broke my collarbone in pregame warmups. And, you know, as a young redshirt freshman, I, I wasn't really sure uh, if we would get the opportunity to play in a game of that magnitude again. So I, I hid it from yeah. the trainers. I hid it from the coaching staff. And I played about three quarters of that game with a broken collarbone. Wow. Uh, and, wow. you know, yeah, that, that, that kind of stings. That kind of yeah. stings. Especially when you're making tackles. Down. Yeah. And then uh, I was uh, involved in a play that didn't go so well. We had a fake field goal uh, that was installed during the week in preparation for the game. And the player who was supposed to be the in guy on the uh, field goal team, uh, George Hemingway, he was suspended during the week for some activities at a party. Yeah. And I was his replacement. And we had driven down to the goal line, couldn't punch it in, and we called the fake field goal. And that was going to be the spark that was going to get us back into the game. And as I was releasing to run the route, and in my head I'm thinking, man, glory, I'm about to catch a, catch a touchdown yeah. in the orange ball and get my team the spark. <laughs> a Notre Dame defender who's not even looking at me just happens to grab my jersey as I'm running by and slings me down. Oh. I fall down. And as, as I'm scrambling and crawling, trying to get back up to my feet, I can see our, uh, our holder for the field goal rolling out, trying to find me in the back of the end zone. Of course, I'm yep. not there. Yeah. Play fails. So no. I'm crushed. So oh. going into the next season, yeah. and then in particular that next year's Orange Bowl, yeah. uh, I got a fire in my belly. Mm-hmm. I felt as if my injury let the team down. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, I, I felt that you know me being able, unable to um, catch that pass and that fake field goal let the team yeah. down. So I was determined to have an amazing game. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it turned out just that way. I ended up forcing a fumble that set up our go-ahead touchdown. Oh, I man. I in tackles. Yeah. Um, and outside of the Rockets return, which was called back, where I had him in my arms, mm-hmm. other than that, I played almost a perfect game. Nice. <laughs> well, that's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that, Chad. It really opens up our eyes for people that remembered watching that game uh, back in the day. And uh, equally as important as your football career, in college, I hear you got your first snake. So can you tell us uh, what your first snake was and how you gained a passage, uh, passion for reptiles? Well, I'll go with the second part first. Uh, I grew up uh, in Southern California on the, on the foothills of the mountains in the Pasadena area. So as a kid, you know, leaving the backyard and literally walking to some wilderness areas and seeing California king snakes and alligator lizards and all types of toads and frogs, I was, you know, very into the natural world. And at that time, uh, there was no crocodile hunter, but there was Marlon Perkins of Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And that was where, as a young kid, I got my, my animal passion um, from him and his adventures all around the world. And my mother, uh, bless her heart, said, you know, no snakes in her house. So growing up, I had fish. I bred fish in my bedroom. I had some birds. I bred finches in my family's living room. Certainly caught all kind of uh, animals, reptiles around my parents' house. But still, the rule of no snakes existed. I got a tarantula for my 12th birthday, a Mexican red knee tarantula that continued my passion for exotic animals. So my freshman year at the University of Colorado, someone in the dorms had a boa for sale. Uh, I purchased that boa. Scraped together all my little pennies. I certainly didn't have very much money. Yeah. Uh, and I got my first boa and I named her Fear. And uh, I had Fear for a very, very, very long time. Uh, she was actually the uh, second snake that I ended up uh, breeding once I got into snakes. 
Wow. And as luck would have it, I met uh, a guy at a local pet store uh, named Cameron Tepedlin. Uh, he and I ended up being really, really good friends. I was in his wedding. He was in my wedding. Nice. But uh, he was breeding reptiles in his basement there in Boulder, Colorado. And I thought, wow, I could do this. And it could put some money in my pocket. I could, you know, really explore my passions and allow me to buy more animals. And I could do this without the NCAA knowing what I was doing. As a scholarship athlete, you're not allowed to have a job during the school year. They can set you up with a job yeah. during, during the summer, but not during the school year. Mm. So this was a way for me to make a couple thousand dollars each spring selling my babies to all the local pet stores in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, so it worked out great. And that really sparked my passion. And once I got drafted by the Steelers, I was, had some money in my pocket and I was able to, to build a business. Oh, that's, that's great. And that's a, a passion I know that you continue to, to, to today. We'll talk about that in a bit. But speaking of the Steelers, obviously you were drafted in 1993 in the second round. Also, your teammate, Dion Figures, was drafted in the first round. So I think it speaks really highly of your college that the Steelers would draft two players from the same defense with their first two picks. So what did it mean for you and Dion to continue to be teammates in the NFL? It made that transition so much easier. I think every, you know, draft choice goes through a, a transition uh, and more than just what's happening on the field, but how do you adapt in meetings? Uh, you're taking guys from one town and moving them to a complete another town. Dion was also from Southern California. So, you know, while, you know, we certainly fell in love with the Pittsburgh area, you know, it's a bit of a unique place and the change from either Southern California or from Boulder, Colorado to, uh, Gibsonia, Pittsburgh, where we both ended up living, is a, is a yeah. completely different uh, world. So to have each other yeah. to rely upon was fantastic. But let's not forget, uh, Joel Steed was a Colorado Buffalo. So oh, he was already yeah. there. So yeah. there was comfort in the locker room as soon as we walked in the door. Gary Howe was a Pittsburgh Steeler throughout uh, training camp our rookie year. He ended up, I think, going to Cincinnati after that. But he was also there. And then, hmm. you know, they, we drafted Cordell. We drafted Charles Johnson, the receiver. Uh, yeah. So there was a number of Buffaloes becoming Pittsburgh Steelers at that time. So it was very comfortable and really eased that transition for us all to walk into that locker room like, hey, man, what's up? Good to see you. <laughs> that is, and I couldn't believe that because – I forgot about the players before you, but you're right. Charles Johnson was drafted in the first round the year after you from Colorado. Then Cordell was drafted uh, the following year, 95, uh, in the second round. So it's huge that such high – I mean, obviously, you're, you're, you're right when you said earlier your team brought in so much talent that it was unmistakable, and the Pittsburgh really took advantage of that talent. And uh, so you also have a unique uh, perspective as well because you got to play with Cordell Stewart both in college – and in the pros. So what did you see about his game that you thought he was going to be a special player? And how did, how did he play differently when he went from college to pro? Well, at Colorado, we ran a, a, an option attack. It was called the, you know, the eye bone. Um, and so instead of being in a traditional wishbone formation in the backfield, we had a, a receiver flanker kind of guy who was set off to one side or the other of the eye backs. Uh, he could certainly go out for passes. He was a, you know, sometimes a blocker out there on the edge trying to cut down those cornerbacks, cut their feet from underneath them. So we had Mike Pritchard, um, who ended up being drafted in the first round the year before me. He was the first uh, selection from the Colorado Buffaloes. I think he went number nine to Atlanta. He played that spot. Well, while, while Cordell was a you know, redshirt or a young quarterback, sometimes he would uh, be on the scout team, and he would play that eye-bone slot flanker position. 
And he was really, really good at that. <laughs> yeah. But then at the same time, he would go back and play quarterback and lead the option attack and was really good at that as well. Then we made the transition from an option attack to much more of a passing attack. Coach McCarty knew that passing was going to be a bigger part of college football, really wanted to differentiate ourselves from Oklahoma and Nebraska and not try to recruit the same type of players and go after a different player. We ended up bringing Cordell in and uh, Coy Detmer to lead the mm. Buffalo oh, yeah. to becoming a passing team. Yep. And then suddenly Cordell's back there slinging the ball all around the yard as well. So Jeez. here's a guy who could pass. Here's a guy who could run the ball as a quarterback. But yep. then I saw his ability to catch the ball on scout team. And I thought, mm. man, this is an amazing athlete. Plays quarterback for the Buffaloes really successfully, passes the ball well. Mm. And then it was no surprise when Coach Cower decided to make him slash yeah. When you have an athlete of that caliber and he's not ready to be your starting quarterback, mm -hmm. he can certainly contribute a number of different ways. And, you know, the, for two years, Cordell was the most useful weapon in all the NFL. Definitely was. And it was a, a big part of the success also for 1995, not only Cordell in the slash role, but honestly, you guys were dominant. I'm talking about the, uh, the Blitzburg defense. I'm talking about, you know, um, we got Greg Lloyd, Kevin Green, LeVon Kirkland playing with you starting in 94 when you got named the Blitzburg defense. So uh, how fun was it to play on that defense? And what was it like to play and interact with those other linebackers? Wow. Um, you know, I was a part of what I thought was a very special group of linebackers at the University of Colorado. Uh, shortly after I got into the NFL and for maybe a few years after that, we were the uh, number one defense uh number one set of linebackers in college football and uh there were more colorado linebackers in the nfl than any other school so i know penn state is considered linebacker you for a while colorado was so i thought i was a, a part of a very special group of colorado yeah and i come into pittsburgh and i get to play with those guys and wow. uh you know i think nfl films has this ranked as the seventh best linebacker crew ever wow uh, we were together for three <laughs> years so yeah. you can imagine if we were able to stay together a little bit longer. And it was the absolute perfect situation to walk into as a young player. Yeah. I've got, I've got Greg Lloyd, who is literally the baddest man in the NFL. 10th <laughs> you know, degree, Taekwondo, black belt. Wow. Played the game with such amazing passion and, and fury and anger. And, and that's why I, I learned how to really become – uh, an NFL player from an attitude perspective, from how you go out and how you approach the game and yeah. you know, what, the, what, what it takes emotionally to go out and play this game. And then the other side, I got uh, Kevin Green, who was mm. much more of a technician, who taught me the, you know, the techniques that are important, who taught me that it's really about your work ethic during the week that sets you up for success on a, on a Sunday and your ability to take those techniques and put them into action every single week. So that was amazing. And then I've got a young guy next to me, LeVon Kirkland, who I am learning how to be an NFL player with. But at the same time, it's very difficult for me as a rookie to try to compete with Greg and Kevin. So I competed with LeVon every single day, every single practice, every single game. Not yeah. that we were, you know, like competitors in a, in a mean way, but we were yeah. competing on how much better we could make ourselves every day. So a uh, absolute perfect situation you know plus there's greg plus there's rod woodson and there's carnell lake 
and there's, you know, yeah. Dick LeBeau, and there's Dom Cape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's all these other amazing players to just be quiet as a rookie and learn from. Um, one quick story. Mm-hmm. My wife and Carnell Lake's wife became good friends. And after the season was over, before we left town, Carnell invited us over for dinner. And Carnell's giving me a tour of his house. And at this point, I'm a rookie and I'm wowed by, you know, the big house and all that. I'm still living in an apartment. And he takes me into his den. And in his den, he has a treadmill and a TV. And I thought, wow, this is what you do. He's like, yeah, this is, this is what I do. No matter what's going on, I can get a workout in. Yeah. I can run no matter what the weather's like outside. We get snowed in. I don't have to go to the facility. I can get a workout here. Wow. So a couple of weeks later, I end up getting my, my bonus on the back page of my contract for the couple of sacks I got my rookie year and all the, <laughs> the couple of incentives that I met. Yeah. So I ended up buying that $17,500 treadmill, which ate up all my little rookie bonus that I had. But I learned, I saw what Carnell did and what kind of player he was. And I thought, if he's doing that, then that's what I need. So I bought that treadmill. I still have it to this day down in my basement. And it's a gift that keeps on giving because me and my wife still work out on that thing. If you spend that much money on a treadmill, I'm glad it's a lifetime treadmill, man. (laughs) It it definitely makes the money worth over time. (laughs) Good investment. So in 1995, that was a special, special year for the defense, special year for the team. You guys made it to the Super Bowl. What was that season like for you? And what was your experience then like in the Super Bowl? That was a bit of a tough year for me. I started really hot that year. I had five and a half sacks in the first three games. And, uh, yeah, I'm having, uh, you know, images of, of the NFL defensive player of the year in my mind. And uh, I, I can't believe, you know, that I finally gotten to a level where it's not Greg Lloyd, Kevin Green, and LeVon Kirkland and Chad Brown you know, my name is mentioned before the and part happens when they're talking about the Steeler linebackers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then in week four, I believe we're playing uh, Cincinnati, maybe on a Thursday night or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I get cut down from behind and I get a severe high ankle sprain, you know, as, as awful of, of an experience as, as I had had uh, with my, with injuries at that point in my career. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was really, uh, unable to play very effectively for, for quite a while after that. And uh, I ended up, after a couple of weeks of trying to play on it, uh, Coach Cower and I decided, you know, let's just try to get this thing keeled up. Mm-hmm. And then after that, the Steelers win nine games in a row. So, you know, while you're thinking about your defensive player of the year, well, they certainly didn't miss you very much when you were gone. <laughs> so it was a very humbling experience to – to have that uh, and, and realize, yeah, I'm a good player, but this team is loaded with good players. And they're going to move on without me. Yeah. So by the time we had the, uh, the Super Bowl, I was better and feeling more healthy, but I certainly was not 100%. So to be in the Super Bowl and not being able to do all the things that you want to do and be able to, you know, deep, dig deep into your bag of tricks, that certainly, uh, you know, was not what I was hoping for. But still, we put together a pretty good performance despite a couple of uh, bad field field position uh, plays we had. Thanks, Neil O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the case. I mean, we, we all remember that Super Bowl. Obviously, Steeler Nation was super excited to get back 
to the Super Bowl because it had been since the 70s since they'd been there. But you guys still put on an incredible show. It was an incredible year. We loved rooting for that defense. We loved rooting for Blitzburg, and you were a big part of it. I mean, I, I remember rooting for you specifically, Chad. So that's Thank you. Thank <laughs> big you. for me. So in 1996, the year after the Super Bowl, uh, Greg Lloyd gets hurt, the dominant man, the, the, the alpha dog, I guess, right there on the outside. And you had to then move from middle linebacker to outside linebacker, correct? Correct. So what was that transition like, and how difficult was it for you to go from inside to outside? Well, during the draft process, uh, the Steelers were looking at me as an outside linebacker. I made a similar transition at the University of Colorado. My first two years playing, I was an inside linebacker in a 3-4 defense. They were expecting a, a guy from a junior college to be able to transfer in. Something happened. He wasn't able to transfer in, so Coach McCartney asked me to move from inside linebacker to outside linebacker. And uh, I made that transition pretty su successfully. Yeah. Uh, had a number of sacks, was named all Bay 8, was named all American. And in the end, I thought I always played inside linebacker with an outside linebacker style. Yes. Yeah. I certainly was not built like a guy like, say, Mike Singletary. Mm -hmm. uh, was a leaner, longer, kind of more of an athletic kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so I always joked uh, that, you know, hey, you can put me anywhere on a football field. I'm always going to play like an outside linebacker, despite what position you put me at. Yeah. Uh, the, the morning of the draft, um, Bill Carroll calls and says, hey, you know, Chad, we signed Kevin Green a couple of days before the draft. Yeah. We still love you as a player. Mm -hmm. Can you play inside linebacker? And I said, hell, coach, I can punt if you want me to. I don't care. <laughs> you just got to draft me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I came in as an inside linebacker with some reluctance because I had just come off two very successful seasons as an outside linebacker. Certainly not unhappy about becoming a Pittsburgh Steeler, but just, yeah, yeah. you know, you kind of give a, a sense of where your natural position should be. Yeah. Um, but they put me in a spot that allowed me to play inside linebacker in a way that made me feel very comfortable between Dom Caper as a coordinator, Marvin Lewis, my linebacker coach, and Bill Cower. Mm -hmm. They gave me some flexibility at that spot that allowed me to do some things that made me uh, feel at ease at the position. Um, so, yeah, Greg Lloyd goes down the opening day uh, down in Jacksonville, wow. a game yeah. that we end up losing, a terrible game. Yeah. They forced us to wear the black uniforms. It was a hot day. I felt mm -hmm. like my brain was melting in that black helmet and that Florida wow. heat. Wow, yeah. And then, you know, the baddest man in football goes down with a, a knee injury. Um, yeah, so that was tough. And then trying to make that transition, while I certainly had the skill set to do it, uh, in the meetings, I was paying attention to what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hadn't really focused on, on those other outside guys. And now I'm trying to make that transition and play that spot. And those first couple of weeks were – were difficult. I, I, I didn't step on the field very, feeling very confident mm -hmm. in my techniques and in, in my assignments. But by about week three or four, I started to pick up some momentum and then things took off after that. And that's huge because now you're talking about your first year as a pro playing outside linebacker. You make all pro, you make pro bowl. Obviously you knew how to do it. You didn't, you excelled at it. You were the best in the league being the all pro. So that's a huge, huge accomplishment. And uh, so, but what you just mentioned earlier, I was really interested to hear because it's something as fans that we think about, but we don't really get to hear from the player perspective. 
and that is wearing the dark jerseys early in the season in away games and hot locations outdoors. So how much does it affect the, the players themselves, and are there specific players that, or specific positions that it would affect more than others? Uh, I think, uh, you know, defensive linemen are the guys who require the most rotation. They're such big guys, and rushing the quarterback is a maximum effort thing. Or taking on double teams. If you're, say, a nose guard like my buddy Joel Steed, taking on those double teams. Those guys seem to be the guys who would, you know, if we stayed on the field too long for an individual drive, mm-hmm. or if we were overall during the course of a ball game, if we were 70-plus plays defensively, and those guys would start to wear down. Obviously, the coaches would try to substitute guys in, but you want to play your best players the maximum amount of plays they could play. But once you start as a linebacker, feeling those offensive linemen start to get up to your level, it's like, hey, man, you guys starting to wear down up there. Come on, let's pick it up, fellas. Let's pick it up. Yeah. But to answer your question, I've played on a, a few teams that uh, had early season outdoor games, and the opponent would choose to go with their lighter uniforms and force us to wear dark stuff so it yeah. happened a few times when i was a pittsburgh Steeler. obviously that that black soaks up a lot of heat yeah and despite you know training camp being in latrobe where it's certainly hot and humid mm-hmm. uh nothing like south florida although jacksonville is actually northern florida but still yeah. nothing like florida still, still hot with that heat and humidity and that oppressiveness and i've actually been on a seattle seahawks team where we played in arizona mm-hmm. with a noon kickoff on opening day uh, and we were wearing our very dark blue uniforms. And once again, yeah. you're wearing that helmet. It literally feels like your brain is melting inside that hot helmet. <laughs> wow. I, well, I hope they've done something to help cool off the helmets in the future. I'm not sure if the technology is, is improved. But yeah, back then it was essentially wearing like a, a sauna unit on your head. That's amazing. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. hurt. It hurt. No fun. <laughs> so in 97, then, you signed with the Seattle Seahawks who ran a, I believe they ran a 4-3? Correct. Okay, so what position then did you play for them in the 4-3, and how different is it playing a 4-3 versus a 3-4? Well, go back a little bit to that playoff run in 96. Obviously, my contract is going to be ending there in in a couple of games, and we're starting to have some very generic discussions and Tom Donahoe at the time, who was one of the uh, you know, front office personnel for the Steelers, calls me in his office and is like, hey, Chad, we really want to retain you. I'm like, hey, I'd, st- I'd love to be a Steelers. This is an amazing place to be. Yeah. Uh, obviously, as a Steeler linebacker, yeah. you know, almost every single year there's a Steeler linebacker in the Pro Bowl. I mean, it's just how it works. <laughs> the defense features linebackers. You get a chance to go out and show what you can do. Yeah. And, you know, I'm coming off a 13-sack regular season. I think I had three or four sacks during the playoff run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can only picture myself, you know, having more continued success. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they drafted Jason Gilden uh, the two yeah. years before, yeah. and they had just given Greg Lloyd a big money deal. So where was I going to play? Was I going to yeah. bump one of those guys into a different position? Yeah. Well, because they were essentially outside linebackers only, yeah. well, then I was going to have to move back to inside linebacker. Yeah, I was just some, you know, uh, I don't know what you would call it, some magazines or some football organizations, defensive player of the year. I was all pro. Yep. And I got to move positions <laughs> yep. now. Clearly, um, Greg Lloyd's going to come back from the, from the injury. Yeah. And Jason Gilden ended up becoming a very, very good player. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the Steelers' perspective, what do we do? Mm-hmm. We love Chad, but we've got outside linebackers. And the inside linebacker position that he plays – at that time, did not 
warrant very much money from a salary perspective. Yeah. So the Steelers were kind of in a very difficult spot. You know, obviously I was going to have suitors who were looking at me as an outside linebacker to get out for the quarterback. That job pays a lot of money. Yeah. They were going to ask me to move back inside. That job didn't pay a lot of money. Yeah. It was very difficult to resign me. And then Tom Donahoe said, well, Chad, I'm not really sure how well you would fare in a 4-3 defense. And as a competitor, <laughs> you, you, you kind of issued a challenge to me. And yeah. while I wanted to remain a Steeler, mm. you know, there's, there's that competitor in you that says, you know what, I'm going to show you, man. I'm going to show you what I can do. Yeah. Um, not, so that didn't, that, was, that didn't make me leave the Pittsburgh Steelers. Obviously, you know, as a football player, it's a great experience, but it's a job. And the jobs, what do they do? They pay you money so you can take care of your family. And when the Steelers offer was smaller than the signing bonus I was offered from some of these other teams, I wanted to remain a Steeler with all my heart. Yeah. But at some point, it, the, the finances just become, uh, you know, they become unequal. And it's just, it just doesn't make much sense to, to go in a different direction. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I ended up signing with the, Pittsburgh, uh, with the South Seahawks. They played a 4-3 defense. And at some point, I played every linebacker position possible uh, during my career. But I started off as a weak side uh, linebacker in the 4-3 defense uh, that first year. Ended up moving to the strong side for most of my career after that. But, uh, yeah, that that was a a bit of a change. It took some adapting to do. Um, But, I, I, you know, if you can play football, I think you can wrap your mind around so many different spots. And I was able to do that. Yeah. And that's – not only did you take that fire from Tom Donahoe's words, I know you, like you're saying that's not the reason for you to be upset or to leave, but I found it really interesting that, and what did you play? Did you, you, you played on the, uh, on which side? And the, in- I started off on the weak side as okay. a 4-3 linebacker. And then later on after a year or two, I moved to the strong side over the tight end typically. And you're still going back to the Pro Bowl. You're still getting an all-pro nod when you're moving positions in a different defense. So can you explain to Steeler fans that watch football how different it is for the linebacker's job in the 4-3 compared to the 3-4 that we're familiar with? Okay, well, in the 3-4, what the Steelers play, obviously the outside linebackers are both on the line of scrimmage. Therefore, you know, it's very difficult for something to come at you from, you know, only one, uh, two directions. You know, you're facing, in, you're looking into the quarterback and all the action, all the blockers, all the offensive linemen are coming at you from one side. Yeah. So that, that allows you to really be, you know, very singularly focused on just maintaining the edge of the defense. We're going to force everything back inside, yeah. we're gonna, you know, keep contained kind of thing. Um, or we're going to be the edge rushers as far as, you know, getting after the quarterback. Mm-hmm. But once you move to a 4-3, typically those guys are stacked off the line of scrimmage so you're playing off the line of scrimmage four or five yards and you are uh you know have blockers essentially on both sides of you even as the outside linebacker in a four three you're still typically inside the offensive tackle so that guy can block you the uh, guard can actually get at you from the other way so you have to have a a wider sense and a wider field of vision Mm -hmm. as a four three linebacker than a three four linebacker uh-huh. Um, it, it does take uh, a bit of a, an adjustment from that perspective alone. And then I think it gives the defense, in my opinion, less flexibility. 
part of the, the beauty of the 3-4 is they have no idea which linebackers are going to be blitzing and coming because there's four of them on the field. And typically, one's coming every play, but they don't know which one. Yeah. The 4-3 linebackers are much less involved in the blitz game, mm-hmm. uh, much less, uh, you know, to, uh, a possibility to get after the quarterback. So mm-hmm. those kind of things uh, are some of the differences. But you're still able to stand out. You're still able to make plays, and you scored a lot of touchdowns. As we just saw these clips right here. Yeah, we got some great clips here for it, which I love watching as well, um, because I was still rooting for you even when you went over to Seattle, because you never forget the players that you love and enjoy rooting for. I was glad to see your success continue over there. So you spend eight seasons in Seattle. You gain more All-Pro and Pro Bowl accolades, like we talked about. How different, I mean, you're back on the West Coast, obviously, where you probably feel a little bit more comfortable, but how do the cities and the organizations then differ between Seattle and Pittsburgh? Well, Pittsburgh is one of the top organizations in, in the sport and has been for a very, very long period of time. The job that the Rooney family does is absolutely incredible. But the interwoven relationship of the city of Pittsburgh the Pittsburgh Steelers and the people who live in Pittsburgh um, is unparalleled. It has to be in any other NFL city. Kids in Pittsburgh grow up wearing Steeler diapers and sleeping on Steeler sheets. (laughs) And their mom wipes her face with a Steeler bib. And, you know, my uh, last year in Pittsburgh, when I came back for the year 14 of my career, uh, after I left Seattle and did a year in New England, came back for year 14 into Pittsburgh, I stayed uh, in a corporate apartment downtown in the theater district. Mm -hmm. And even as I walked around downtown, almost every single person you see is wearing something Steelers. Mm. So if it's a woman, she may not have a Steeler hat on, but she's carrying a Steeler umbrella. She's got a Steeler scarf. If it's a guy, he's got a Steeler beanie or a jacket (laughs) or something. So just you cannot separate the, the two. Mm-hmm. Other cities don't have that same relationship. Mm-hmm. Seahawks had some very diehard fans, mm-hmm. um, and, and they were awesome. Yeah. Uh, but the Seahawks fans at that time did not travel the way that Steeler fans traveled. As a Steeler, when you show up to the hotel at an away game, mm-hmm. the hotel lobby is going to be packed with 500 screaming Steeler fans. Wow. As a Seahawk. You show up at a hotel, there'd be like five people outside. So, I mean, (laughs) and and, and I certainly don't want to, you know, diss the the Seahawks fans because they're incredibly diehard. And the success really hadn't been there for that franchise until much more recently. Yeah. Um, So you can understand why the the difference in fan bases are just because of the amount of tremendous success that the Steelers fans have had. Mm. Um, But just that, that difference alone, you know, speaks to it. I can walk around the malls in Seattle and, you know, I felt very much like a normal person. As a Steeler, if I walked around the mall in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. I ended up being chased, and I felt like I was one of the Beatles with, you know, <laughs> half the country chasing me. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be a lot of fun, too, especially as a young player. And, and the Steelers fans are so rabid. I, I know as soon as you got drafted, they knew who you were. And, it's, and you started – you became a starter relatively quickly. I mean, not even halfway through the season, I think, you, you, you became a starter that season. So – anywhere you would have gone <laughs> right out of college. He's, hey, people know who I am. That's great. That's got to be an awesome, awesome feeling. And yeah. mm-hmm. 
So is there anything that really sticks out then from you playing wise? I mean, I know we saw some of the highlights and some of the touchdowns, and I know you were a big part of helping to that team to build on the success because I think recently, right, right around that time or right before you joined, isn't that when Seattle went from the AFC to the NFC? We did a couple of seasons in the AFC West. Okay. And then we moved to the NFC West, I think, halfway through. So I was there eight years. I think my first four years I was in the AFC West. My last four years in Seattle were in the NFC West. So mm. we went through that transition. Yeah. Then we also, uh, two years of Dennis Erickson, then we brought in Mike Holmgren. Yes. And, uh, you know, the first year, obviously, Mike's kind of, you're kind of forced as a new coach to kind of play with the roster that's assembled. Mm-hmm. Then you start rebuilding the roster. And I could see that success was, was coming. Unfortunately, that success happened the year that I left. That was the yeah. year that, the year after I left is the year they ended up playing the uh, Steelers in the Super Bowl. Yes. And uh, I've got a bit of an interesting story about that. Uh, after year 12 in uh-huh. Seattle, uh, that last year, year 12, I, I broke my fibula. So I ended up missing wow. quite a bit of the season. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 17 screws, you know, uh, four plates in my lower leg. Um, but I, I come back later in that season and still play at a pretty high level. The last couple of games, the regular season, that first playoff game against the Rams, uh, I lead the team in tackles at the games that I'm playing. I have a couple of sacks. So I still can play ball, but I miss most of the year. And at this point, you know, Seattle's concerned about my injury history, not willing to pay me the big money anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, released out of my contract. So I talked to uh, four teams. I talked to the Seattle Seahawks, mm-hmm. the Pittsburgh Steelers, mm-hmm. the Denver Broncos, because I live here in Denver, and the New yeah. England Patriots. Wow. Uh, all four great teams and by this point really strong organizations no matter where i went i could not have made a wrong choice yeah bill cower you know says hey chad we'd love to have you you know but we don't rotate our linebackers mm-hmm. joey porter and clark Hagens are going to play you know 90 percent of the snaps it's yeah. not going to be a lot of snaps for you yeah. so as much as i want to go back and rejoin pittsburgh mm-hmm. you know i still want to play i know i can still play and contribute Yes. Uh, the Steelers were, I'm not sorry, so the Seahawks were a little unsure of what my role would be. They were going to go after a cheaper guy at linebacker. Would I be a third down pass rush guy? Um, the Broncos were certainly interested, had a good talks with Mike Shanahan. I ended up making a choice to go to the New England Patriots. Yeah. Um, to play with Bill Belichick and his genius football mind, I thought was yeah. an opportunity that I, had, that I had to seize. They were coming off back-to-back Super Bowls. I thought I could be the first part of a, a, a NFL three-peat. Yeah. Uh, so I was excited about that possibility. And then, of course, as that season unfolds, um, my New England Patriots lose to Denver Broncos in the playoffs. Yeah. The Broncos lose to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the championship game. The Seattle Seahawks <laughs> lose to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl. So I was close. Yeah. I was really close, yeah. but I made the wrong choice. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You couldn't have made a wrong choice for any of those teams to have a chance to play. So my question, I had a specific question for that season, is since the Steelers were playing Seattle in the Super Bowl, you're in New England, you played for both Seattle and Pittsburgh. Who did you root for in the Super Bowl that year? You know, I don't have a, a rooting interest. I, I, when I watch a football game, I want my friends to do well. Yeah. But I, I don't have a, a rooting interest. An example would be for this year, the 49ers played the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. And I did a coaching internship in San Francisco for the OTAs process. So I was with that team for six weeks. Uh, at the same time, my college teammate 
Eric Bieniemy is the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs. Yep. So, you know, at this point, no matter what teams are playing, which teams, I've got people on those teams who I know, mm-hmm. who I want to do well, but kind of preclude me from saying, hey, I only want this one team to win. So, that, in, in between, you played for New England for two years, but in between, you did end up coming back to Pittsburgh for one more year. Can you talk about that year that you came back to Pittsburgh? Sure. So, for year 13, I was in New England. And uh, we lose to the Broncos in the playoffs. And I decide, you know, I think, I think I'm done with football. Um, so uh, I have my parents fly out to the game, to the playoff game in case we lose. We lose. I have a very tearful moment with my parents outside the game, you know, outside the locker room, out there in the parking lot. I think this is my last football game ever. Um, later that spring, uh, Bill Belichick calls and says, hey, Chad, you know, what are you thinking? Oh, coach, I'm thinking I'm done. He's like, oh, you might want to consider that. I think you still got something to, to add. I think you should play. Okay. So when Bill Belichick says you should play, okay, I'll play. So I end up going to training camp with the uh, New England Patriots. First day of pads, I break my hand. Wow. So I stick around until the, the final cuts. And Bill Belichick says, hey, we'll, we'll call you back uh, once you get cleared by the docs and you're healthy. A couple of weeks go by. It's probably week three, maybe four, about around that time. I get cleared by the docs. I, I call Bill Belichick and say, hey, coach, I'm ready to come back. He says, well, we, we had a couple of injuries. We had to bring in some extra DBs. We don't have room on the roster. We'll bring you back next week. Okay. Well, that Wednesday, mm-hmm. I am picking my kids up from gymnastics class in New England. Uh-huh. And my phone rings. And I look at my phone, and it's a 412 number. Uh-oh. A little like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and I answer it. Uh-huh. And the voice says, hey, Chad, it's Bill. And I'm thinking, why is Bill Belichick calling me from a Pittsburgh number? This is <laughs> super weird. <laughs> and I go, hey, Bill. He goes, yeah, Chad, Bill Cower. Oh, hey, Bill, how you doing? <laughs> hey, we had a couple of injuries at outside linebacker. Are you in playing shape? Of course I'm in playing shape. I've been killing myself here in New England, trying to get myself prepared to get back on the team. I just got cleared by the docs with my broken hand. Yeah. We want to get you on a flight in the morning. We want you to start for us on Sunday. Mm. All right. So pick the kid, take the kids home from gymnastics, tell the wife the story, uh, start packing my bags. I'm on the first flight out in the morning, mm. uh, taking me from the airport directly to the medical offices, getting me cleared for a quick physical by the doctors, rush me over to the facility. And next thing I know, I'm on the practice field playing outside linebacker again for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, we played Kansas City Chiefs uh-huh. that, uh, that first game back. Uh, I ended up getting a sack. Nice. Um, I, I think some Steeler fans, you know, knew I was going to be back. There's a bunch of fans wearing my old jersey. Uh, I get out of the locker room to, you know, go to the parking lot. Uh, all these people have these, you know, Chad Brown jerseys and I'm signing autographs again and they're go Chad. And it was just an awesome, awesome experience and a great way to be welcomed back to the Steeler family. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's a nice story, man. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Now, eventually Joey Porter came back from the hamstring injury and then Clark Higgins came back from what injury he had. And then James Harrison, he came back from the injury. He had all three of those guys were nicked up. That's why Bill Cowher brought me in. Yeah. They eventually got healthy. 
So at some point, I'm not getting very much run at outside linebacker. So I go to Bill Cowher and I say, hey, Bill, I'm a player. I want to play. Yeah. Put me on special teams. I don't care. I just want to play. Yeah. So I ended up playing special teams for the rest of the season. And um, that brought me back to my early days of my career, you know, to be yeah. a 36-year-old man running down on kickoff. Um, it's a little bit of a hair raising, but still amazing experience. <laughs> and that speaks a lot to your competitiveness of, as a football field or as a football player to be able to ask to play anywhere on the field to contribute. And that is huge. And that's that I think that, uh, James Harrison actually followed your example as well, because I know that in some of his best years, he suggested that he should be playing special teams as well. I think when the defense player of the year, he actually still came out and covered some kicks, uh, in, in certain situations. So that's, that speaks really highly of you as a football player. I really like hearing that. Thank you. Yeah. So, your final year, obviously, you go back to New England. Then just tell Pittsburgh at least what the New England experience was like for you personally and then how your last year ended up. Uh, the New England experience was incredible. It, it, it really was. And uh, I know each fan base wants to hear, you know, bad things about the other, the other teams in the NFL. Uh, and obviously, Pittsburgh and New England have had a number of battles uh, during my time there, but also, yeah. uh, you know, after I've played. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a good sense of uh, mutual dislike, I'll put it. But as a guy who has been in both organizations, they're both incredible organizations run by really incredible, passionate people. Um, the Rooney family, the Kraft family, you know, leaders in what the NFL is and has become. And then, uh, you know, Bill Cowher and Mike Tomlin and Bill Belichick. I think everyone would consider those all to be great coaches. Bill Belichick with his track record of Super Bowl victories is in the conversation for one of the greatest coaches of all time. Yeah. Um, so it was an incredible football experience to be in New England. Um, if I were to kind of summarize, you know, each one, each experience, you know, with Bill Cowher, uh, and I talked about this a little bit earlier with Greg Lloyd, mm. we want defensively, we want to come out and overwhelm people with how hard we played. You know, at that time, they didn't keep players once they got past year 10 because they wanted guys who were young, who were aggressive, who were incredibly physical. Yeah. So that was how we played. We overwhelmed teams with from the opening uh, kickoff with just our pure aggressiveness. Mm. And that's how the game was played. That's how our mindset was. Of course, we paid attention to the details of the defense, and the Blitzburg defense has some complexity to it. Mm. But we weren't a detailed team. We were a physical get after you, really kick your ass kind of team. Then I go to Seattle, and we got Mike Holmgren. Mm. And he's very professorial. He's got his glasses down on his nose. He's calling plays. And he's calling the Bill, the, the West Coast offense from Bill Walsh. And it's very precise. Yeah. And it's very precision. You know, quarterback's going to throw this ball to your inside number when you get two yards inside the hash, hash mark. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how we played football. It was a very detail-oriented. It wasn't a passion thing. It wasn't a physical thing. It was if you – follow the play design correctly, we're going to be successful. Then I get to New England, and all that's out the window. Because as you've seen with the Patriots, they're willing to do anything it takes to win. And mm. sometimes they've crossed the line. But I can remember in uh, my last season in 2007, we played Pittsburgh on a Monday night. Pittsburgh comes into the game with the number one defense in the NFL. Mm. What does Bill Belichick do? They throw the ball the first 35 plays in a row. So the philosophy in New England is we're going to get you where you're weak. Yeah. And along the way, we want to teach every single player on the field, all 11 guys, what the right play is to make for this situation. Mm. Not the athletic play, not the spectacular play, but the right play. 
Yeah. Uh, Teddy Brewski, mm-hmm. my New England teammate. Uh, I don't think he would actually be truly athletic enough to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers defensively. Mm. But if you think about Teddy Brewski, the number of amazing game-changing plays that he made for the New England Patriots mm. was because he knew what the right play was for every single situation. Take yeah. a guy like Mike Vrabel, who yep. really couldn't get on the field yeah. as a New England Patriot. Ended wow. up being, I mean, as a Pittsburgh Steeler. Pittsburgh Steeler, yes, he was behind yes. Gilden. Yeah. Really couldn't get on the field. A great player, you know, obviously a great mind, an NFL head coach right now currently, but then he goes to New England, and then Bill Belichick finds all these different roles for him and teaches him how to make the right play in every situation. So for a guy who couldn't get on the field in one defense, both those guys I'm talking about made amazing plays that propelled the Patriots to some Super Bowl championships. So it just kind of speaks to the different styles of each organization. There's a lot of ways to win football games. As we've seen, there's a number of different ways to win a Lombardi trophy. Yeah. Um, and each of those teams had a very different way of going after it. And I know we spoke earlier about snakes. I wanted to come back to that a bit because when I was a kid, I actually used to be one of those kids that would just go out in the woods, hit the riverbanks, check the tree roots, reach up, try to grab something. I'd grab some garters. Uh, I'd grab some, you know, black snakes, rat snakes. And um, tell the Steeler fans, because I know this is one of your passions, and how did you get into hunting and collecting snakes? And also tell Steeler Nation where you travel in the world to find specimens. Uh, well, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, where that snake passion kind of, of came from. But as a kid, I was going out into, you know, foothills of Southern California and looking for rosy boas and California king snakes and all that stuff. Um, once I met uh, Cameron DePedlin, the friend that I talked about earlier, he and I, we've traveled to Costa Rica, we've traveled to Indonesia, we've traveled to Thailand. Uh, I've been in the deserts of uh, Texas and, uh, you know, northern Mexico, deserts of California. I've literally traveled the globe. I've been in Africa looking for snakes. So I've been all over the world uh, looking for snakes. Um, I had my company, Pro Exotics Reptiles. We were one of the largest breeders of com- uh, captive bred reptiles in the world. We produce reptiles on a commercial scale for the pet trade. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, in 2011, I had a, a fire which, uh, you know, ended that business essentially and I lost, you know, 99% of my collection in that fire. Really uh, heartbreaking uh, yeah. day. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, so often when you've played sports as long as I have, I have to rely on these sports cliches because they are true. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the most important play of the game? It's the next play. Yeah. So I can't do anything about what has happened the play before. I can only affect the next play. I can't do anything about what has happened with this fire and all these dead snakes. I've got to worry about the next play. So the next play for me was building my animal shipping company, Mm -hmm. uh, which started off as Ship Your Reptiles. Yeah. Uh, Now we have Ship Your Aquatics. We have Ship Your Invertebrates for people who like to ship, uh, you know, keep bugs and tarantulas and scorpions and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Coming up soon will be Ship Your Fauna and Flora for people who like to ship uh, and sell roses and orchids and you know weird nice. cactuses and all those odd plant things. So uh, I've transitioned to the animal business in a different way. Mm-hmm. I now help people sell their animals and ship their animals rather than me selling my own animals. 
Wow. And you obviously, with this company, have to negotiate the different laws of interstate trade depending on the type of animal and, and, and shipping. So I, I know that's probably a lot of work to do all that research to find ways to do it. But for me, if I had an animal to ship, it would be smart to use a company like yours to be able to move my animal so I don't have to worry about breaking any, any laws for shipping an exotic animal possibly across state lines. Yeah, we take care of all that part for you. Literally, uh, the FedEx driver will show up at your door and pick up your box that you probably got from us mm -hmm. um, and then get that box delivered to where it needs to go without a whole lot of headache and hassle from you. We take care of the headache and hassle for you. Yeah. Um, you know, you just got to put a healthy animal in the box and we'll deliver a healthy animal to your customer on the other end. That's great. And congratulations also on finding a new species of snake. Can, uh, can you tell us what it was like, where you found the snake, and the process documenting and recording a new snake? Yeah, so Cameron Tapellin and I and another buddy, uh, Dave Barker, he and his wife are probably the most uh, well-known python breeders in the world. We were traveling throughout uh, some smaller islands in Indonesia. And, you know, part of that is you look at all the old, you know, field journals uh, from all the old, uh, you know, explorers back in the 1800s. And then they talked about a species of a big species of python on the island of Halamahera. So we took a ferry ride, you know, a couple, you know, like a day and a half to the island of Halamahera. And one of the first things you do is you go to the local skin trader who sells, you know, reptile skins. And you look at all the different skins and we're looking through these skins and we see reticulated python skins, which is probably the most widely um, distributed species of python throughout Southeast Asia. Yeah. And we're seeing reticulated python skins. We're going through skins and eventually we go, whoa, whoa, what, what is this? Where does this one live? What's, what's going on here? A skin that we've never seen before. Yeah. It lives on the other side of the island. It lives in the caves. It eats bats. Okay. So we, you know, we asked our driver, we hired a driver right there at the ferry to, you know, go ask around, go down to the local market, if, you know, some, who's, a, who's a guy who could help us find these, these pythons? He comes back later that evening with a guy who, who was, whose name was Anus, um, which was spelled Anus, so that was a little bit of a <laughs> joke for us Americans, yeah. having fun with Anus. Yeah. And um, us and Anus, we set out one night to go to the caves and we left Anusa's house and he said, why don't we bring a chicken with us as bait? Okay, fine. You know, it eats bats and may eat a chicken. Maybe that'll be a way that we can attract the, the snakes in the cave. Yeah. And we're walking for about uh, an hour or so. We get to this large river mm -hmm. and uh, they say, okay, Anusa says, okay, we got to cross the river. Mm -hmm. And I go, Hey man, um, we've been exploring Halamahera for like a couple of days and I've seen crocodiles in the river. So just, in general, I don't cross rivers at night without having crocodiles in them. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, and then Anus is like, oh, no, we'll be fine. And so, you know, I'm standing on the riverbed. And I'm kind of throwing rocks, trying to see how deep it is and how wide it is. It's, you know, it's Indonesia. There's no streetlights. Yeah. It's super dark. <laughs> and my flashlights can't reach the other side. And then he says, well, why don't you hold the chicken over your head as you're crossing the river to make sure it doesn't get wet? I'm like, man, I'm not worried about the chicken getting wet. That's, not, that's the least of my fears right now. Yeah. I, so up until that time in my life, I've been a number of places in the world looking for reptiles. Uh -huh. And I was always the hunter mm -hmm. looking for the reptile to catch it and capture it. Yeah. This was the first time I realized I am prey. <laughs> I am 6'3", 245 pounds. Yeah. But there are animals out here 
that could see me as food. There's crocodiles that could certainly eat me. Yeah. And we are clearly, judging from those skins we saw at the skin guy's place, mm. we are in a place where pythons get really, really big. And the last thing I need is to get, you know, constricted by a 25-foot hungry reticulated python. Yes. <laughs> so after some convincing, we decide, let's go back to Anusa's house, have some more Indonesian rice beer, and we can get after this in the morning. That's going to be a much better plan. <laughs> So we head back, uh, we have some more beer, we swap stories, we go back the next day to the cave, we see some shed skins, and they're the oh, wow. skins of the species of python that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're there for two more days, we go far and wide, all over the island, looking for this python. Mm-hmm. Um, we are preparing to catch the ferry to leave Halamaher and go back to another island we can get on the plane, which would then fly us back to Jakarta, where we could leave Indonesia. Yeah. Somebody comes to our hotel and says, you know, they caught one of these pythons you guys are looking for. Wow. So we, you know, we hurry up and pack. We rush over to see the python. We, we, we see the python. We, we arrange to buy it right there. Yeah. Um, Dave Barker, uh, who's a really renowned photograph, uh, photographer, photographs the species, documents it, you know, essentially where it was found. Um, we bring that, that particular specimen back to um, – the transportation hub there in Jakarta, the reptile transportation hub that my friend has set up. Uh, we make arrangements with folks in Halamahera to catch a few more. Mm. We have all those shipped to the University of Texas, which has a, a herpetological department there. Yeah. They do the things they do, all the scale counts and all the different documenting that they do. And yeah, so I was a part of documenting a new python species to Western science. And it ended up being named after Dave's wife, Tracy Barker. So its Latin name is uh, Python Amethystinus tracii, named after Dave's wife, Tracy. Wow. What an awesome story. (laughs) Yeah. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And that's that's the the things that people need to understand is, is especially when football players have passions and they, they, you know, you're one of the few that go out and explore the world and really get some experiences. And thank you so much for sharing and enlightening us with that, with letting us know like the whole process. Cause for me, it would be super exciting. I have a little bit of a science background myself. I have a biopsychology background. So I geeked yes. out a little bit when I heard that you, you got written up in the paper and then part of the, part of the documentation for the new species. So that's really, really cool stuff. Um, so do you currently still have and, and collect snakes, breed snakes, and what's your current collection look like? Uh, I've got a few animals. Uh, I've got uh, four green tree pythons that I, I keep in my office. And my initial thought, yeah, there they go right there. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> this is from a couple of days ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's from your Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I um, bought them as babies initially to test some cage designs that I was doing for one of my uh, reptile companies where I design and build cages. Yeah. Um, but in the end, uh, once they, they were old enough and I was able to figure out what sex they were, it ended up being one male and three females. Wow. Um, they are themselves a mix of several different really beautiful green tree python localities. Depending mm-hmm. on where they're from, they all have kind of a different look. Yeah. Uh, so those four animals are a mix of three different localities. Um, so I'm interested in breeding them and see what the F2 or the second generation of babies yeah. will look like based yep. on this mixing of localities. It should be very, very interesting. I've done similar things uh, with different species in the reptile world in the past where I you know, took the same species but took specimens from different localities and bred them together. And I was able to 
you know, really do some awesomely colored and patterned animals by mixing these different looks together. Um, so I'm interested in that process and I'm beginning to get, this is the first year I'm getting breeding from those green tree pythons. I should have two females this year to lay eggs. Mm -hmm. I also own Fernando, which is the world's largest and oldest uh, Mexican beaded lizard. Uh, beaded wow. lizards are the larger cousin of Gila monsters. Everyone's familiar with Gila monsters, the kind of orange and black, uh, pink and black, uh, venomous lizard from southwest uh, United States. Well, uh -huh. they have a bigger cousin in Mexico, the beaded lizard. Uh, this animal was an adult. It was caught in the wild 55 years ago by a friend of mine named Bob Applegate. Uh -huh. Bob got out of the reptile trade a few years back. I agreed to take Fernando. And so every day that he is alive, he sets the longevity record for this species in captivity. Yeah, yeah so that's a young beaded lizard. Yes. Um, Fernando's pattern has kind of faded away as he's gotten older. Okay. But that's essentially what Fernando looks, but a much bigger, bulkier version uh, that Fernando is because he's so much older. Nice. I wasn't familiar with this species at all. How long is Fernando and how old is Fernando? Uh, Fernando's probably, I, we're guessing 59 or 60, because to be a, a fully grown adult in the wild takes some time, and he was yeah. a fully grown adult when he was captured 55 years ago. Mm. Um, so we're assuming that um, he actually could be older, which would, you know, again, but from a documented captivity perspective, there's not a beetle lizard anywhere close to him in captivity. So uh, <laughs> I feel as if I've been entrusted to a very special animal. Um, yeah. He stays uh, in my offices at Sugar Reptiles. Oh, neat. We've got a big cage for him. And I've actually set up a, one of those really large, you know, wire outdoor dog kennels mm -hmm. on the balcony of my building. And on warm days here in Colorado, I put him out there in that outdoor dog kennel. Mm -hmm. And he's able to get some sunlight and hear the birds and all that good stuff. So I try to give Fernando as good of a life as I possibly can. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, now we're at the point of the conversation where we take questions from Steeler Nation. So we have the SteelerNation.com forum. Our members then get to write in and ask specific questions for the people that we're interviewing. So just have a few for you. Slash Steel says, uh, Steeler, Steeler Nation loves us some Chad. Uh, I picked up a snake calendar at Rogers Flea Market a few years back, and it had you and some other Steelers in it. Can you talk about what that can you talk about that shoot and who was in it yeah that was an amazingly fun uh process getting all that done so the western pennsylvania school for the deaf i got hooked up with them through the steelers and ended up really supporting that school for the last couple of years that i was a pittsburgh steeler and so that calendar ended up being a charity uh, uh i guess a product for the school and a lot of money was raised for that school, so I'm very happy about that. But um, NFL players and reptiles is always just a fun mix because you have these really, you know, big, strong, aggressive men who turn into, you know, four-year-old girls at the sign <laughs> of a little lizard, you know. So if you, if you flip through the calendar, I wish I had one here in the office, I, you know, oh. um, you could see there's a number of times where people were unwilling to actually hold or touch <laughs> the, the, the animals. So, yeah. you know, some of the shots were very posed. You know, Kevin Green's lying on his back and he's got a couple of leopard geckos on his chest. <laughs> Kevin didn't want to hold anything. So I, I was just <laughs> out of the camera, you know, uh, sight 
you know, placing these leopard geckos on his chest. Yeah. Um, Greg uh, Lloyd's holding this, you know, a large albino Burmese python. It's a great contrast between the albino Burmese python mm. uh, and Greg's dark skin. It was a yeah. really, you know, well-composed shot. Um, and Greg was completely freaked out the entire time. And, you know, <laughs> I've said a few times on this Zoom call, you know, Greg's bass man in football. Yeah. But that python really, really scared him. And then we even went kind of cute. So we picked uh, Joel Steed, who was the biggest person involved in the photo shoot, uh -huh. and gave him the little tiny baby turtle, just to, you know, like, <laughs> a well-composed shot, kind of taking advantage of the contrast there. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then Bill Cower was the last one to show up. I took some convincing to get Bill to show up. Uh -huh. um, but he, he did show up, and he was one of those people who refused to hold anything. Mm -hmm. So I had to hold the animal itself, and Bill was going to pose with it. So we ended up uh, with a monitor lizard, a uh, West African uh, monitor lizard, and he grabbed a piece of plant um, just kind of as a way to have something in his hand, and the lizard ended up biting the plant. This is a lizard that doesn't eat plants. It eats rodents and, and, and bites and rats. <laughs> <laughs> but it bit the, the the piece of plant that Bill was holding, so it made for a great shot, and that's where we went oh, with the calendar. Cool, that's a good, that's awesome, and I, it, it's a blessing when a Steeler fans have that kind of calendar. We have to have him show it to everybody else so we can see that because that's and it, in that calendar, then that shoot went to charity. You said yes. So some uh, it was done at the uh, conservatory there in, in Pittsburgh. Some oh. of the money went there. And the rest of the money went to the Western Pennsylvania School for the Deaf. There was a school oh, where they wonderful. accepted kids from all over Pennsylvania who were deaf or blind no, and oh, yeah. brought them into an environment where they, you know, that was structured specifically for them to enable them to, to learn and to be around kids uh, with a similar uh, issues and handicaps. And really, uh, it was an amazing, amazing place. And I was very proud to be a, a part and associated with those great group of people. Oh, that's fantastic. And Drink Iron City has another question as well. He says, thanks a whole bunch and glad you're taking the time to do the interview. And what impression did, did you have in the city of Pittsburgh for the coaching staff specifically? I mean, obviously you played with uh, Capers and LeBeau and uh, Cower. So what do you have to say about the, the coaching staff and how their technique was to teaching and implementing uh, the design of defense? Oh, wow. Uh, position coach coming into the league was uh, Marvin Lewis. Marvin Lewis has clearly you right. know, presented himself to be a really good coach. Moved on from us to become a, a coordinator at, at a couple of different spots, and then you know became a head coach uh, and had, had one of the longest you know ten years as a head coach in, in modern football history. Uh, but Marvin was great because he really took personal pride, I, I would say, for me and Levon. And you know, stayed after practice and made us watch the extra film to get us up to speed with what it meant to be, you know, a Steeler linebacker. And I'm completely grateful for all those amazing teammates that I've had who gave me a great example. But Marvin to be able to devote so much time to Levon and myself. And then one of the best things that Marvin did is early on he asked me, "How do you want to be coached?" And I said, "Marv, you know." I don't like being yelled at. It's not the way to get the best out of me. Yeah. I have tremendous pride about myself and what I do as a football player. Mm -hmm. And I want to be really, really good. Mm -hmm. So just assume if I've made a mistake, it's got nothing to do with motivation or effort or anything like that. I just made a mistake. Yeah. So coach me, don't yell at me. 
Mm-hmm. So Marvin was typically up in the press box and uh, coach's box and not down the sideline. So we've seen players in all games, you know, answer the phone on the sideline. That's usually a coach up in the coaching box wanting to talk to him. So, but Marv took my words to heart and I don't believe Marv yelled at me one time in the three years he was coaching me. Mm. He would be excited and he would call down from the coach's box. Yeah. And instead of yelling, sometimes he would be laughing. Whoa, Chad, <laughs> man, you screwed that one up. I'm not <laughs> sure what you were thinking, but I appreciated Marv took what I wanted and put it into action for him as a coaching yeah. style for me because that's the way he got the best out of me. Mm. And then, you know, being a chance to be around, you know, Dick LeBeau, a Hall of Fame guy. Yeah. Um, Dom Capers, one of the best coordinators. So the coaching staff, uh, guys who, some guys who are still involved in the NFL, uh, a really amazing staff. And, uh, I, you know, I can't, I talked about my college experience and how much more could I actually want from a college experience. Yeah. How much more could you want from a team that's drafted you? You get a chance to play in the Super Bowl. Mm. You're in the playoffs every year. You win division titles. You play with Hall of Fame teammates. You get coached by Hall of Fame coaches. Mm. Uh, what, yeah. I mean, how, how could that be any better than that? <laughs> it's a blessed career, and I'm so glad that you got to enjoy that, too. Because I Thank you, too. I mean, it, it's just so fun getting to know the players, the people behind the players, because it's something that Steeler Nation doesn't really get a chance to do, so. You know, nothing is, is more special to me than spending some time with you and getting to know you. So I really appreciate your time too, Chad. Oh, you're very welcome. Cool. And I know that you're in Colorado, Denver area. You do some work with 104.3. So tell our Steeler fans out there in Denver, what shows do you frequent out there and how can they listen to you? And also with the uh, Pac-12 as well. Yeah, so I, I've been working with uh, 104.3, the fan, uh, the, the biggest sports station here in Denver for the last four or five years. Uh, I've done a show there, but at this point, I'm the number one fill-in guy. So somebody's out for whatever reason. I typically fill in on any of the shows. Um, you know, typically it's a football-focused show. This is a Bronco town. Occasionally, you're forced to talk about the Nuggets or the Abs, the hockey team, or things like that. But it's a Bronco town, so most of the shows are about football. I have uh-huh. usually a couple times a week I'm on the show there, and then uh, on most college football Saturdays. I'm somewhere across the country talking about college football. I do mm. games with the Pac-12 network. Mm. You know, the University of Colorado used to be in the old Big 8, and then it was the Big 12. Now they are with the Pac-12. Yeah. And so I call games with them uh, for the early part of the season. And then the second part of the season, I move over to Compass Media, which is a national radio outfit. And I call college games with them as well because it's a national college game. We typically have a really big college game each week. Yeah. Um, so I've done uh, Penn State, Michigan on a Penn State whiteout night. Um, yeah. That's pretty incredible that's experience. That's yeah. one of the top experiences ever. Oh, you know, no. I've done sold out games at Texas A&M. I've been in, uh, uh, in Alabama for 100,000 plus in their stadium. So I've been, you know, some of the most iconic college football venues and called some great games. Um, it's been a really fun, tremendous experience, especially for me personally, because I grew up very shy. I stuttered as a kid. Oh, wow. So to have the opportunity for me to have the personal growth to become a broadcaster, not that I ever thought I would be a guy who'd be talking about Monday Night Football. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that's for a whole guy, except someone else on a, on a whole different higher level. Yeah. But still, the fact that I get to talk about football, people pay me for that after, you know, I would have never thought that would ever happen for me, particularly how I was as a child. It's been a really fun experience. Mm. And Steeler Nation, you have to follow Chad Brown on Twitter. 
He's at Chad Brown 94. That's C-H-A-D-B-R-O-W-N-9-4. He'll talk everything, traveling, reptiles, current events, football, it's college football. He knows it all. So great person to follow, great person to catch up with. And again, your, your website for Ship Your Reptiles is at shipyourreptiles.com. Shipyourreptiles.com. All pro shipping is the parent company. You can great. find shipyourreptiles.com. You can find Ship Your Aquatics for people who do fish or corals or aquatics plants. And again, like I said, we'll be doing Ship Your Flora. Uh, here in the next couple of months for all the plant shippers. Nice. And we'd love to offer you a t-shirt as well. You can wear one of my awesome uh, Steeler okay. Nation podcast uh-huh. shirts. We got them in. Uh, the- well, I'm totally partial to the black and gold. So, you know, send it my uh, way, man. I will. I'll shoot you an email and we'll take with that. So thank you again. And we really appreciate having you, Chad. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Steeler Nation, Father's Day is coming up. And you can get a great gift for dad on SteelerNation.com beer ca- beer, gear page, not beer page, and I'm sure dad would like a beer, but we have every size and color choices to satisfy all of Steeler Nation. SteelerNation.com is the best site for fast, unique Steelers content on the internet. Boom. <laughs> check the podcast button, listen to one of our many interviews, or click the forum button for the best football discussion on the internet. Subscribe to Steeler Nation YouTube channel to be first to know about our live vidcasts and video uploads. Tweet us at Steeler Nation, Instagram us at SteelerNation.com. Follow the Steeler Nation podcast on Twitter at underscore SN podcast, or follow me at SN Striker with a Y. Thanks for joining us on the SteelerNation.com podcast. I am your host, G Striker, with Chad Brown, rooting along with you as always. Go Steelers!